Warning! The following program is solely intended for a mature audience. Any of the idiotic opinions and views expressed on this show are solely opinions of Dark Cringe Radio and not of its advertisers, which is completely pointless because this poorly produced, dumbass podcast has no advertisers. Furthermore, any rebroadcast or redistribution of Dark Friend Radio podcasts without per- the permission is strictly prohibited. If you do, we will find you. Then we will send three black-eyed children to your home or office to collect your soul. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Radio um, today, everybody. Thanks uh, for tuning in. Uh, tonight is uh, episode 41, and uh, today we have a very uh, special guest with us on the line. And his name is Bernie Taylor, and uh, he's an author of a book called Before Orion. And uh, we're going to be getting into the book and uh, talking about the collective unconscious. It's um, you know, it's a theory that was um, you know uh, brought on by Carl Jung. Uh, for some of that you may know or may not know, uh, and it has to do with a lot. Of, you know, that's the main premise of the book in a way, uh, because uh, what Bernie did with this particular book was he was able to um, put together a collection of uh, different uh, depictions of art throughout the world, um, basically confirming the collective unconscious. And it's a it's a very fascinating book. I urge everybody to go check out his website at beforeorion.com. And uh, check out his books. Um, he's also has some other books um, prior to this as well. But tonight we'll be talking to him about that. I wanted to remind everybody about how you can uh, follow us on social media. Um, there's a couple different ways. Um, we're available on uh, Facebook, uh, also uh, Twitter and Instagram, um, and also uh, YouTube. So please make sure you go to all those avenues, especially YouTube. Subscribe to the channel so anytime a new episode comes out, you get the notification right away. And boom, you can watch your episode whenever you want. So um, please make sure to uh, follow us there. And how to listen to the podcast, very simple. Um, There's a few different ways. You can uh, check us out on iTunes um, if you have an iPhone. Uh, We're also available on Google Play, Google Music. Just look up Dark Fringe Radio in the podcast section. And also SoundCloud. Um, Another one that's not listed here, um, but I want to also mention is Player FM, which is also another platform that kind of collects a bunch of different types of podcasts and compiles them onto one website. It's a very cool uh, site. So if you guys have never checked it out, uh, check that one out because um, it has a, a plethora of different types of uh, podcasts. So if you like a lot of different things, it's a really good uh, platform for you guys to check out. So, But if you go to any one of those, please make sure you subscribe to our channel. Um, you give us a like, uh, five-star rating if you're you know, doing the iTunes. Please do that. It's super important that you do that for the podcast. That's how we uh, are able to continue doing this for you guys. So um, I'm going to be getting into our interview here in a moment with Bernie Taylor. So, um, again, I wanted to remind everybody, if you have any questions, anything, suggestions for the show, um, you can send that to me directly at thedarkfringe at gmail.com. Again, that's thedarkfringe.com at gmail.com. So listen, um, a very interesting conversation I had with Bernie. Um, I hope you guys enjoy it. I, I really do believe that you guys will. Uh, we're going to get into that here in a second. So I hope uh, you guys uh, enjoy. everybody thanks for uh, joining in on the podcast tonight at dark fringe radio tonight we have a very special guest uh, his name is bernie taylor and he is the author of a book called before orion and uh, we're going to be talking about a very interesting subject uh, regarding the um basically it's called the collective unconscious and it's a topic we've kind of talked about indirectly um but really not directly but we're going to get into all that and talk about his book and you know what he's uh is depicting in all these uh stories and pictures that he's uh you know basically compiled 
which is very fascinating, by the way. If you guys have a chance to you know pick up this book, please, I, I urge you, uh, look at his uh, website, um, BeforeOrion.com. Um, and you can also find it in also uh, Amazon and all those uh, other retailer stores that you could uh, pick this up. But uh, it's just a fascinating book. Uh, it has a lot of uh, you know great stories and pictures to go along with it. So again, I wanted to uh, welcome, again, Bernie Taylor, uh, author of Before Orion. How are you tonight? Hey, great. Well, we're going to hear some thunder tonight. Ah, that's so we'll great. Just, we'll listen in on a little showers going on here in Oregon. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Well, listen, uh, thanks for taking the time uh, to speak to me uh, tonight. And um, this is a fascinating subject. Just before we uh, went live here, uh, you know, I told you that I've really not gotten into the subject, but you rebutted and refuted that I have. And you're actually right, because, you know, after, uh, you know, Talking, you know, talking to you initially and then looking into the subject matter, I actually kind of understand what you're talking about. We're going to talk tonight about every monster there ever was, every dream we've ever had, and every myth that from around the world, because it all goes to the same place. And that's that that is our program today. That's wonderful. And again, um, it's, it's the, the theory is the collective unconscious, and it's a theory that was made famous by uh, Carl Jung. And of course, he's the famous, um, I believe, uh, philosophist. And, um, you know, it's, it's quite interesting that you were able to uh, compile all this information, all these pictures, and really make a different, uh, you know, a correlation to how we kind of repeat the same mythos in our lives, the same kind of constructs, whether it be the, like you've depicted uh, very uh, thoroughly in this book, The Hero Theory. Um, you know, it's it's interesting how, you know, there's other theories out there that are fantastically famous out there, of course, uh, like you talk about the ancient alien theory and, of course, the, you know, lost civilization theory, so on and so forth. But, you know, those have been, you know, commercialized to exhaustion. But this is actually something that's very interesting because it makes perfect sense. It's the perfect, um, it's the perfect explanation to why we have these certain constructs in our life. Will, you and I have had this conversation before. Um, <laughs> deep in our DNA, back in ancient Greece, there was somebody who questioned. I came to the to the temple, and someone asked me from from the higher ground. Um, the same questions that you're asking me and they're, they're posing the same problems and they're they're saying, you know, maybe you got a pretty good idea there. And the only difference is we're not we're over the airwaves. We're not a temple. We're not wearing togas and we're we're not drinking wine. At least I'm not drinking wine. I'm drinking water. Um, the, the costumes and the sets change, but the story remains the same. Yes, yes. And that's a, that's the important part. And yes, we're not in togas and we're not in, you know, pyramids and we're not in, you know, uh, you know, ancient Rome, but we have the power of the airwaves and being able to spread this message because quite frankly, I think this is one of the most uh common sense explanations of our history that, you know, it just fits. It doesn't it doesn't have to you don't have to go to fantastical corners or, you know, uh, vast universes to make this work. You just will. You just realize you were just disinvited from contacting the desert for the rest of your life. <laughs> Probably, you're, right? You're, you were just blackballed. That was it. You're done. <laughs> hey, listen, I, you know, I have to explore all avenues. That's my thing. And, you know, I, I tell everybody that starts to become um, aware and a little bit questionable about what they've been taught in you know our society through education and whatever the case may be, they start to question things and they start to really start to research uh, information and where the sources come from and so on and so forth. And I think that's important. Um, but you know, this is again, like I'm saying, it just makes sense what you're talking about here. Uh, with this book, and I, you know, I've been able to go through it very, you know, little because I, just at the time that I was able to get it and actually speak to you, but I was able to peruse a lot of it, um, and it makes a lot of sense. I see exactly what you're talking about. Now, uh, talking about the conscious, uh, you know, the collective unconscious. A lot of people don't know what the hell I'm talking about when I say that. I didn't Absolutely. even, I yeah. didn't even know. So, you know what I let's, mean? Let Let me give a little primer on that, please. Okay. Um. So we're going to go to 
um, the Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung, who came up with this idea of the collective unconscious. And Jung believed that there are symbols and archetypes within our memory that pass on from one generation to the next that are they're deep within us that we don't even think about. So if you see a mother and her ch- breastfeeding her child, you recognize that it's, it's a mother-daughter relationship. If you see an old man and a young boy, you recognize that it's a, it's a teacher, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a mentor and an and a apprentice of sorts. Um, if you see a bull storm into your kitchen, you recognize its danger. No one has to tell you to do that. So Jung said, Jung, Jung looked at the dreams, many thousands of people, and he found that there's common symbols or archetypal characters. And on the, non, on the non-organic side, the two most common are the mountain, the cosmic mountain, and then the river of transformation. And then among animals, people dream about horses, elephants, snakes, bears, and so on. But they don't dream about hippopotamuses, and they don't dream about wombats, and they dream about bats. They, they dream about the same animals. And so Jung said that we're... We're, we carry these dreams in us somehow, and he called that the collective unconscious. And when the story, if you're um, if you're looking out your window and there's a is a blue jay who's feeding her 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 young, she's she's br- brought worms back, and a big crow comes in to steal those worms. Right. right away, you think the crow is the villain. No one had to teach you that that crow was the villain. Okay. But it's, it's somehow in your conscious that you recognize that. And you recognize that bluebird who's, who's feeding the young. It's a mother feeding her, her child, her, her offspring. So we, we have these archetypes within us. And when the archetype is, is encountered, the stories evoke. And then maybe an owl flies by and scares off the, the, um, the, um, the crow. And so that owl became the hero. So we, we, we can find these we find these stories naturally within ourselves and they go back to a very distant time and they I believe they actually go back to a time when we were you know f- walking on all fours that we were a different animal because the just that blue jay recognizes that the crow was danger and that she needs to feed her young and the owl recognizes that what the crow was doing maybe didn't know it was wrong but he recognized that he was being an intruder and yeah. so these 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 archetypal characters, um, the old and the young, the mother and the child, the hero, the damsel in distress, and the villain, they're in us, but they're in us from a very distant point in time, and perhaps when we were on force. Yeah, that makes. And I don't mean four as babies. I mean four as you know, cavemen, pre-chips. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I get it. I totally get it. And you know, it's funny because I was. Um... I was cooking dinner tonight, and I was uh, watching my daughter at the same time, and she was watching Shrek, the first one. Mm-hmm. And there's um, a very old school archetype, of course, right at the beginning, towards the middle of the movie, of him having to go save the princess in the castle from the dragon, right? Mm-hmm. And as soon as that came on, and I'm like thinking to myself, and I'm thinking about this interview tonight at the same time, and I'm like, holy shit. Like, bang, like, it just, like, a light bulb went off again. I'm like, look, this is the same story. This is exactly what we're talking about. It's the same story. It's because we we tell these stories through archetypes because that's how we can understand them. Um, Someday there might be, aliens might visit us, and they'll have a story without archetypes. It's just something different. They may have a story that's backwards. And we're like, what the heck? We have no idea what you're trying to explain. But through the, the standard progression of the story, the hero goes on a journey. He, 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 he encounters danger. He, he faces his fears of the danger. He, he, he overcomes them, saves the damsel in distress, returns home. And on that journey, he meets friends. He has he has a mentor, some sort of a wizard, Obi Wan or Yoda or whoever the the the, the, um, um, the witch from the east. Yes, whatever that whatever that mentor is that gives him gives help. Um, he needs that to to he, he believes that he needs that, but ultimately he really has to face his own fears. But we tell that story everywhere. There's really fundamentally two stories out there: the hero goes on a journey, or the, the stranger enters a room. Um, and then everything else is some mix of that. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, it makes sense because that's, I mean, a stranger entering the room, that's so vague. That could be at any point, right? I mean, that's that's anything. That's the genesis and that's the origin of all, right? If you really think about it. 
these are the, the two – and, of course, it could be the hero that enters the room, so it's, right. it makes it a circle. But we have, we have these two fundamental stories that we tell when we have archetypal characters, the, the hero, the villain, the damsel in distress. And, the, and, you know, what was that movie last year, that the Creature from the Black Goon movie that won all the awards? Yeah, it was uh, – uh, I think it was called Something of Water, uh, The Shape of Water. Yes, The Shape of Water, yes. which is interesting that the, the, the damsel in distress is the so-called monster. And yeah. the, the, the female character becomes the hero. Yes. So as a so, social construct, we can switch them around. So she saves, she, saves, she saves the so-called monster. But the monster is really the government man who's trying to kill off the, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Of course, yeah. And so we switch them around. The, story, the, the Disney story of Moana, she becomes the hero on a journey as opposed to Hercules. Yeah. Um, and so we, we, we change – whether the hero is male or female, the, or the, or the person distresses male or female is a social construct. But we fundamentally tell the same stories. And this, we, we can go back in time to 34,000 years ago to a cave painting – actually not a cave engraving um, in Spain. And there's this panel 10 meters across, streams, streaming across with dots. And these, these red discs are about the size of your palm. And if you look beyond those red discs, you can find characters. In those characters, we can see the hero taking this journey. And he, he, he encounters animals on the way, and he, he, he harnesses the strengths of those animals, whether it be the eagle, the, the horse, the dolphin, the seal, um, the lion, the giraffes, and so on. And he goes on this journey, and he, he actually encounters a damsel in distress. She's a redheaded woman, and she doesn't look very happy. And then he goes off. He goes to the other end of the panel, and he spins around, and he encounters the the Barbary ape and the the lion and the um, the lion, the bears. I'm looking in my mind right now. Um, <laughs> the now extinct great auk, and then there's a dragon. It's actually a crocodile, which is was inter- later interpreted as a dragon. Right. And so we have all the characters of Saint George the Dragon Slayer, but we have all the characters in myths throughout the world. We have this hero that goes on goes on his on his journey and we can see the expressions in these characters this this female character with braided red hair she is obviously in distress and um, the the artist 34,000 years ago had the ability to capture that and this hero on his journey holds a club club and he stands at the the, the top of the at the, at the bottom of the panel it's really the top of the panel and um, he's holding the club in victory and, and around his neck, he has a, a red pelt made from these red discs. So he, he's, he has clubbed something, to, he killed something to, that had those pelt, that had a, you know, molten or red pelt that he now wraps around his head as the victor. Um, so this story goes back, this fundamental story of the hero's journey and the damsel and the archetypes, it goes back such a deep in time. And it, it asks us the question, do are we really inventing anything in our minds other than microchips and more trouble? That's exactly what I thought. Uh, that's one of the first thoughts that came to my mind. I'm like, are we just replaying a record over and over again, thinking that we're recreating or we're creating something that in reality that we really didn't? We're just putting the record back on the record player again. We're just we're just spinning the wheel. Of course, in Ecclesiastes <laughs> is attributed to Solomon that there's. All things have been done before will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Right. And and we're we're repeating Solomon right now. <laughs> okay. Exactly. And uh, yeah. so it's fat. So the so the ancient Egyptians, the Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Babylonians, they had been to these caves because there's there's key characters in the stories that they tell. Yeah, that's and one they would thing, have looked. That's one thing I noticed. There's like it, it it there's like there's always that one key character that kind of follows every other story in every area. Is that correct? Correct. There's actually a unique story. So we can actually see the Giza Sphinx in this panel. And it's exactly – so the Giza Sphinx is, has the, the head of a human with the body of a lion. And in this particular case, we have – it's actually the, the lion, the complete lion. And then the, the, the face kind of pops out the top. But is, it is the exact same. So we can tie that one to the – we can tie that to the Egyptians. We have this – we have the – we have probably about 20 Greek constellations Um which we can tie to the Ptolemy, um, so to the Greeks. We can go around this panel. We can find these these unique characters among the Tuareg people of the Sahara. There's a, a very unique story about uh, a woman, a man, hero, and an and an elephant. That's very explicit, and it's something I, no one else has this story. And so there's people had been to these caves, and they looked at them, and they said, 
oh my God, we can't do this. There's nothing in our history that could do this. I mean, I mean, the, we don't know if anybody else could do this. There's, you know, the, the Greeks said the Romans couldn't certainly do this. And they, they knew the Egyptians couldn't do it because it wasn't in their in their own art. And so they asked themselves, well, who did this? And, and so, you know, the Egyptians thought the Egyptians, the Greeks, and the, and the Romans, and so on. They all thought that they were the smartest of their time. Of that course. there is an actual an evolution of um, of thinking of thought, and that they were just building on primitive people from the past, just as people believe today. But in fact, we don't. So these, so these ancient people had been to the cave, and they looked at these images that were be, well beyond anything they could do. What do you think that they, what story did they come up with? Uh, probably the, I don't know, the biblical one maybe, I'm thinking? Like, well, they came up with, well, first of all, they said, these people are lost. Right. So these, so we don't know these people. We didn't do this. So this is, number one, this is some sort of a lost civilization. Right. Okay. Yes. This, this is knowledge that we don't have, from, we no longer have, which is really what we still tell today. Yes. Picasso visited the Altamira cave shortly after 1900, because they said that it was a forgery. It was a fake, because nobody, primitive man could not have made those images in the Altamira cave. Picasso walked out and said that none of us in our modern time could have done this. This is not a forgery. This is the real deal. This is knowledge of art that precedes our time. And then Picasso takes specific characters from the Altamira cave, and he uses them in his first his first work of cubism, Les Dames de Avignon. He puts these masks from Altamira cave, his masks of the horses, and he puts them on two female characters in a brothel. And so he he, he transfers the, the 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 female mare metaphor to his own artwork. And when people said when Picasso came out with that, that p- painting, people said, you know, this is horrendous, this is horrible. One day we're going to find Picasso has hung himself behind his great canvas. <laughs> and um, But Picasso stuck with it, and he continued to borrow it, metaphorical images as they exactly were in the caves. So in our modern time, we think of art, modern art, as something we created that comes from Picasso, but we really didn't do it. He borrowed from the past. So this is what I think happened. So there's a lot of Atlanteans out there, and I believe that the, the ancient Greeks, the Romans, and so forth, they went to this cave, and they looked at this, and they said, oh, my God, this is a lost civilization. This is something we can't do. So then they came up with stories about how they were lost, you know, because the, the images don't say that how, how they're lost. And so, you know, at that time, the, the why they could be lost? Well, the gods, right? Floods, lightning. You know, um, you know. Now we the new one is comets, right? Comets and asteroids. Right. Um, and something happened in the night skies that caused this this civilization to disappear, and and that's why we don't no longer have them. And I believe that's where that story of this of the Atlanteans come from. Originally comes from that they saw these images and they said, well, what the heck. And the same that Picasso, but Picasso didn't say it was a lot. You know, they they were whisked away by aliens, or right. you know, the the floods washed them away. Picasso just said, you know, um, we can't we can't do this. But I'm going to learn from this. And Picasso died a very wealthy man, and he is by far the most most you know top five artists of all times, and certainly the the top modern artist. Yeah. So. That we believe is a modern artist. <laughs> right. And that's what's so interesting because it begs another question because from what you just said from his, you know, his quote stating that he doesn't think that this was even from, you know, that even our time or his time could have been recreated. So it really throws the history narrative or the timeline really off track because I really don't think that we have a really good understanding of, you know, how long things uh, happened, you know, as far as timeline goes, I don't really think we have a really good understanding of that. I think that's another, you know, uh, point in evidence towards that. But getting away from that, um, I wanted to ask you, what got you into this? I mean, I, from you to compile all this information, look at all this and, you know, and put all these pieces together, what interested you in, you know, in, in, in this, you know, this whole idea of the, you know, conscious, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's... I fell in it. I fell in it. <laughs> okay. So, so I absolutely, I fell or I stepped in it. Please. And, um, I wrote a previous book, Biological Time, which was, is a, it's a scientific work. And it's about how animals and plants time themselves. Now I live in the, the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. and we have salmon and every year the salmon are earlier, later from what actually every year, the earlier, later. 
And so the salmon might come up in, um, you know, September, early September this year, and last year they're late September. But they all they all early later together. So it's either, you know, out in the ocean, they're all following one smart salmon who, who tells time, or, um, or there's some other mechanism. So I studied the question, and I went. I, I borrowed Fish and Wildlife data. I looked at the endocrinology, of the, of the you know the the um, the, um, the chemistry within the the, the, the salmon, and the and the looked, studied biological clocks and so on. And I actually came up with how it works. And it's pretty damn simple. I can say damn. I hope I can say damn on your oh, program. Yeah, you're That's fine. about as far you're as I go. Fine. You're in good company if, here. If you go to Alaska during the summertime, you get off the airplane, and if it's in the evening, it's still light. And you, you don't get sleepy because it's the darkness that makes you sleepy. And so you might go for two days being up and out about, and, oh, my God, this is just so wonderful. I can get so much more done. and go fishing, hunting, um, berry picking, whatever it is. And you eventually you're going to crash. But with, so with humans, it's, it's the light that keeps us awake and the darkness that puts us to sleep, which is just the opposite with the salmon. The light puts the salmon, slows down the salmon, and the darkness speeds them up. Okay, so because they so they move around to avoid predators, bears, and things like that. Okay, and so what happens is that the if they migrate during the darkness, every night has a different level of darkness. If you have a full moon, it's not really dark for the salmon, and so around the full moon period, they actually stop migrating. And so you have during the dark moon, around the dark of the moon, you have a lot of migration. Well, the moon is out of sync with the sun. The moon is twenty nine and a half days times twelve times twelve is eleven days short of three sixty five. So the new moon, the, let's call it the big migration moon, the new moon, will be um, January 12th one year. Well, the next year it's going to be January 1st. Yeah, it makes sense. And so the reason why the salmon are early later for one year or the next is because they're following a solar lunar calendar. And there's, there's a wealth of information out there in the, in, the, in, the, in the primary literature that explores all these different animals that people had seen one, one point of – you know, birds migrate, uh, waterfowl migrates more prolifically during the dark of the moon. And uh, but what they didn't come realize was, well, the moon's out of sync with the sun. That's why the migrations are early, later, for one year next. I went down the food chain all the way to the invertebrates. So you know, everything that bites you, right. um, they're doing this, have the same, ris- same rhythms. And then I, so I, I looked at this concept and I said, well, someone must have known this. And I looked at um, calendars of ancient peoples as well as hunter-gatherers, and their entire calendar their lunar calendars about wh- where and when they're going to find plants and animals. And so that Native Americans couldn't wait by the river for the salmon to come because they would have heavy food. So they knew to be there at that time. And each one of their – each following the salmon, there was some other biological event that was lunar time that they continued on with. And then I said, well, may, you know, if Native Americans had this down their calendars, maybe it's in the cave art in Europe. And I looked at an image of um, actually images of the Lascaux cave from 17,000 years ago in France, and these they have the same nomenclature and the same um, physiology or characteristics that the Native Americans had in, the, in their cal- in, in their own calendars. So you can look at the you, have, you got a big running megaloceros like an elk, and it's a huge rack and it's blowing steam and its its head is up, it's rutting. That's what it's doing. It's not a summertime, a springtime or summertime scene because he wouldn't have this big rack. And, and he's, he, you can see the steam coming out of his mouth, which say it's a colder time of year. And under him, he has 13 dots. And you count 13 dots to a box. And how it works is if you count 13 from the new moon, you're actually at the full moon. The full moon becomes a box. Mm-hmm. And then what they did was they, they used consecutive boxes to count full moons. So some animals will have a bunch of actual box underneath them with a mark in the middle that will tell them whatever – that biological event was in the year. So they fundamentally had the same calendars as Native Americans because the animals hadn't changed, the sun and moon hadn't changed, and people hadn't changed. And so I, that was about 13 years ago, and I gave lots of presentations to scientific groups, and I wrote some, some articles and so on, and, um, and I, I was way ahead of my time. Um, and I, so I said, I'm going to put this on the shelf for 10 years, and I'm going to come back to it and take a look if something else pops up. And I went back into doing the same chronobiology stuff, and then I saw something in this gallery of discs, and it was an elephant. Mm. And it was like, whoa, um, why is there an elephant in a, in a Spanish in Spanish art? <laughs> and I and I asked a friend of mine, George Schaller, who's the foremost wildlife biologist, he's a mentor of everybody, including Jane Goodall. It was George that said to Jane that you look for 
um, the eating of meat, consuming of meat, um, and tool tool making, which were the two big ones that Jane Goodall ultimately found and made her famous. And uh, George worked with me. We, we recognized, well, that elephant, there were elephants in Europe at that time. Didn't really look at that like that one. And then George and I went through through a year over a year and a half back and forth with emails. We identified a whole bunch of other animals, and one was a giraffe, a mother giraffe and her young. And there were no giraffes in Europe at that time. Um, and so what, what happened was the person had been to, been to Africa. So we have this person, this artist, who travels from Spain to Africa and back again. So we have a journey. And then we actually have two characters of an old man whispering to the ear of a young boy. So again, we have those archetypes of, of the storytelling. And on this panel, we have the damsel in distress. She's over on the end of the, of the giraffes. And all these characters start to fill in. And when I, and of course, we know if Joseph Campbell is the hero's speaking of the hero's journey. Joseph Campbell had visited some of the caves, and he walked out and he said, "You know, they're all myths." And I, 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 I read Joseph, what Campbell had said, and I said, "You know, that's bunk because they're not all myths." Because I do this chronobiology work, and they're not all myths. And he had nothing to actually show that they were myths, other than that they were. He believed everything was a myth and the metaphor, a metaphor that became a myth. And well, it actually turns out that Campbell was right. He didn't know that he was right, and he had a good explanation for that he was right. But all these characters on the panel are actually archetypal characters that um, are metaphor. They're all metaphors as well, and they contribute to a myth. And throughout these caves in, in Europe, we have the, these common character. We have these common characters, and so Campbell was right, um, but not. You know, he actually he just winged it, right? Yeah, yeah. He thought he was right, but he wasn't right about what he thought. He wasn't right about it, sorry. And so we're gonna get we're gonna give uh, Joseph Campbell uh, an A minus on this. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, he tried. Like you, you can't, you know, you know, he tried. But you know, listen, you talk about all these caves and you talk about all these depictions, and it's quite interesting that the same story is being told continent to continent. So you're talking right. about South America. Um, that I saw that some caves in South America that had you know the same depictions as some, some in Africa and the same thing in you know uh, Asia as well. Um, it's just, just it to me. Th- is there a point of origin where all this? Yes. Okay, so there is. Now there's something I don't. I never talk about the last chapter of the book. Okay. Okay, that's if fair. You, if you if you've gone that far, I'm not gonna talk about it. Okay, but I will talk about the point of origin. The point of origin is in Western North Africa at least 300,000 years ago, okay? And 300,000 years about, – about a year ago, maybe, maybe it was a year and a half ago, there was a find at Jebel Hood in, in Morocco. Mm-hmm. And they identified they, – they dated the fossils of modern man um, to 300,000 years ago. And it completely blew every – no one was expecting this. Before that, we were looking. Every, we were going to Ethiopia, 100, Ethiopia, 180,000 years ago. Right. Um, but we pushed it back so far in a part of Africa nobody was looking. But it is exactly the place in Africa where this Paleolithic artist goes to, because the animals, some of the animals that are in the in the image, aren't just African animals; they're Western North African animals. And one of them is the Barbary ape. Um, it's distinctive to West North Africa. There's also two dogs. Um, there's also two dogs in these images that are distinctive to Western North Africa. One is the canary dog, and the other is the the, um, the Tuareg slowly, slowly, or the the Aswan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this this is a journey of a, a person who goes to West North Africa. He's not going around to Egypt, and he's not going to Ethiopia and all that sort of stuff. And he swims across. We can see. We can actually see him swimming. He swims, swims across the Strait of Gibraltar with the dolphins and he's, the crabs on the shoreline, and as well as the seal. Um, and so, the point of origin is three hundred, at least three hundred thousand years ago, in Western North Africa, and it's in a story that everybody's heard. Huh. Absolutely, everybody. Everybody in Western civilization has heard this story, and it's the story of Hercules. And this character is Her- the Greek, Her- the Greek Hercules, that we find this in this panel, and that it, we find him on two ends. And um, he's the he, he's the hero on this journey. On one end, we have Hercules, the character of Hercules. Then we have the the um, the eagle, which is Aegea, the constellation Aegea. We have the horse, it's Pegasus. The dolphins become Pisces. The uh, the 
the seal becomes Cetus, the sea monster. And then we, the, the man at the other end is Orion. Um, and above him is the um, – we've got the, um, the lion, which is uh, Leo. The, the, the bears are Ursa Major. The great auk is um, Cygnus. Above the great auk is the crocodile, which becomes um, um, Draco. Drake constellation Draco, right. and so the, and this it's the story of, of Hercules, and he tr- Hercules travels to West North Africa, and he goes to a place, and um, on one of his on one of his later journeys, um, and it's the story. They're te- the, the ancient Greeks told us the story, and it's 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 in the artwork, um, and it, it's it's undeniable because because there's geographic there's specific. Geographic markers, not just the the animals that are indigenous to that area, but there's geographic markers that show exactly where this place is, and it's the um, so we have we have not only do we have these archetypal characters now myths, but we have the actual myths that people told thirty four thousand years ago, yeah. because the Greeks and others they saw them and they figured they figured out the geography, um, and then they 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 put the stories together. Um, now the, the 34,000 years old story, it's it, it's probably a slightly different than how the Greeks told her, uh, the story of Hercules and the Tuareg told of, of Meriqui and the, the elephant, and the Egyptian told of the Great Sphinx, but they're um, they're a compilation of them, and we can follow we can follow those myths to see how they interpreted as things happened. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, you know, I was I, I'm looking into all this, and it's just amazing the the work that you must have put into getting all these pictures into this book. I mean, that's what one of the most part you know biggest parts of this book that impressed me. I mean, you were able to put all these you know uh, photographic evidence together and, and compile it. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you: Do you think now? You know, we're talking about you know how we can get all this information. You know, with technology and things are you know information is at our fingertip basically do you think this is something that's been more talked about now or do you think it's more hidden now now that technology has you know moved on to where it is now what do you mean by what what specifically is hidden um just the idea of this thought this you know uh, oh okay that's good that's a really good question yeah so 10 years ago one would have had to gone through Time or Newsweek or something like that um, to have a story out like this. But we have a democratization of the media, and I've been on a number of podcasts, and um, I'm over two million people on podcasts. I can count up. I can count up the shows um, that have listened to this story for at least one hour. Wow. So it, the, the journals of Nature and Science each have about three hundred re- readers per issue. Three hundred thousand readers per issue. So I have surpassed science in nature, who and, and those readers are looking at a few paragraphs, right? Blips. They don't read and read their articles. Yeah. Um, so I'm over, I'm at over two million people that have heard this story since last January. Amazing. This past January. Amazing. And so it could easily it could easily go into the tens of thousands. You, you know, you hit a Joe Rogan. That's ten. That's I'm sorry, t- t- tens of millions. Joe Rogan is ten million or something. Right. Yeah. So it's pretty. If, as you, as you move into different spaces, there's um, but it doesn't matter. If, how I see it is, it doesn't matter if it's two million or a hundred million. It's that how does it affect each each individual that hears the story? Yes. What do they What do they personally get out of it? So if I if I if I change the hearts and minds of one person, it's more important than I change than I, than a million people listen to me on a podcast, because it ha- it has to it it changes lives, um, and because it it takes us deep into our psyche, and we have to face this elephant of the room that there were people that were smarter before us, and that were retelling. They recognized that they themselves were retelling stories in the past that that work continue to tell that all this drama that we have in our lives in Washington, in North Korea, mm-hmm. uh, and so forth, all these villains have played their parts before, and they're going to play their parts again. Right. And there will always be the hero who saves the damsel in dress, and that it's all going to work out. But there, there will be dark times, and there will be light times. 
and these we all just you know bear through it you know stay to stay true to who you are and you will you know persevere and and you will live on and your your as and your offspring um and so you know do not be in despair of the of the last two and a half year and a half <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i'm in detention like permanent detention right now but yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know it's um it's it's interesting because we still see examples of this in everyday life i mean we see it in movies we see it in tv we see it in the news we see it um basically in every aspect of our lives um even if you're like a mma fan uh, for instance, you know, they always paint one fighter as the hero and the other fighter as the villain. Um, that, you know, that's been told on and on and on and on and on and on and on again, um, like you've, you know, you've eloquently said. Um, do you think uh, this is a thing that a question that came into my mind because I really started to really get into it when you really posed this whole new spectrum of thinking on me? Do you think this unconscious, this collective unconscious, do you think it's, uh, maybe the root of modern religion so i'm gonna give a definition of religion given by Eckhart tolle okay okay the power of now and tolle says that religion the religious man is following the spiritual belief of another person mm-hmm. whereas the spiritual person has their own experience so if we, we start looking at religions, um, and this is really a Joseph Campbell thing. And Joseph Campbell looked at all the, the major religious characters in Jesus, Muhammad, and so on. And he said that the, they tell the same story of the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is, so, is the, so from the, from the fundament, fundamental story structure, the answer is yes. But we can also actually look into the religious characters, especially archetypal characters, and we can look at the angel. Um, the angel we find throughout the, around the world. There is the bird man, which is the angel. Um, we find it in Horus among the ancient Egyptians. We have it in the the, the Anunnaki. Have it in in their person, um, the bird man. We find it. Native Americans put on the, the garbs of the birds to to speak to the to address the spirit world, to commune with the spirit world. This this bird character is absolutely freaking everywhere, and it's also throughout the, um, the Abrahamic religions. Mm-hmm. And so we, the, so the archetypal characters such as the, the 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 angel are go back to a distant point of time, and we can actually see this man transform himself into a into a a bird. We can see it at Lascaux in, in the shaft of the dead man. We can see it in the El, this gallery of disc at the El Castillo cave. Um, and I show that he transforms into um, the the, the um, shaman who has a vulture mask in another cave, and so the we can see this transformation. And that, so the angel is the intermediary between the, the earthly and the spirit, the heavenly spirit worlds, and that's the same as Horus and these other these characters. So the the characters in our modern religions go way back in time. Now there's another important character too. It's the mountain. It's the cosmic mountain. And you can go through every religion around the world. They either have a cosmic mountain that the hero has climbed. You know, Moses, Jesus Mount was, was Mount Sinai. Jesus right. was transfigured on Mount Tabor. Um, Hercules climbed um, Jebel Tobacal, which we now call Mount was Mount Atlas in mythology, mm-hmm. which is a real place. Um, we can go around the world and find the, the shamans climbing the mountains. And wherever we don't have a mountain – where there's a flat piece of land, we built them. We built the Giza pyramids. We created mountains. And then on the, the Mayans created mountains on, on the flat areas of, of Mexico. And so there's something deep inside of us that draws us to climb the mountains. Now, if, you, if, you, if you're, you're like an actually elementary art class and they ask you to draw a scene, you're probably going to draw – a river in the front and a mountain in the back, and maybe a tree. <laughs> that's true. That's um, true. Okay, it's just a thing. Why are we drawn to do that? And I love that scene in Close Encounter of the, of the same of the, of the third kind, where Richard Dreyfus he can't sleep and he has this dream of the mountain and he builds the Devil's Tower yep. in his living room out of mud. 
And there's other people that have been, have been um, taken, and they, they show that the little boy, he had been drawing pictures of mountains over and over and over in the, the same mountain. Right. And it's fascinating that Steven Spielberg, or his writer, had picked up that cosmic mountain myth that's inside of us. And what's really interesting about that cosmic mountain, Devil's Tower, that's bare large among the Lakota Sioux. Lakota Sioux. And the Lakota Sioux have a historically have a, like a, a religious migration through the spring. And, and it ends at the summer solstice. And it ends at Devil's Tower Bear Lodge. And that's where they have their Sundance Festival, which is when they commune to the spirit world. Mm. And, and so it's fascinating that I, I, I don't believe Spielberg knew that. But he, the same mountain that he shows in his that he's drawn to was exactly the the most important mountain among the Lakota Sioux, which is Bear Lodge. It's in us; yeah. we can't escape it. it. It that's what it seems like. It seems like it's always going to be in our D. It seems like it's in our DNA. Is it in our DNA? I mean, that's so probably what the question I, is, right? Every podcast I've given, <laughs> every presentation I've given, people have asked that same question. I'm going to make a compilation sure. of everybody. Is it in our DNA? Is it in our DNA? <laughs> um, and what you're, what you're really asking is the most important question of all time. How do we pass on consciousness? Yeah, that's a good question. That's really what, the, that's really what you're asking. And so is, is do we pass on consciousness from the mother to the child? Is consciousness somehow in the cloud? Um, is, is consciousness carried through the DNA? Or does consciousness hum, somehow exist and we tap into it? That's, the, that's really the fundamental question. And this is how I see it, okay? Because I've, I've actually pondered, since I've, I've had a few years ahead of everybody else in this project, I've pondered it. And this is what I've pondered. I live in Oregon, mm-hmm. uh, in Portland, Oregon, near the Oregon Zoo, and we've got a lion tank of sorts. And the male, the older male, is always at the top of the rocks. The females are in the middle, and there's a young female male at the bottom. Now, these lions have been fed. So in the natural, in the real world, the, lo- the females go out to hunt, and the, the, lo- the, the big lion top protects the territory he's also protecting the young because if another lion male lion comes in and challenges him and takes over he will kill the the young lions okay so he's protecting the whole you know everything but this this is of no relevance in this lion tank at the oregon zoo because there's no challengers and they're fed but they still do the same thing they still follow the same pattern they have the exact same pattern and you you know you'd really think if if They'd be just all muddling around, you know, trying to scare the, the visitors and so on. But they don't do that. No. They keep those hierarchical characters. Well, we can actually look at these. We can look at these. We can look at the three of them. Well, he is the dominant male. He has, you know, in he, his job, he has warded off, psychologically warded off all the, uh, the other males, including that young male that's on the bottom, right? Yeah. So the, okay. So he's, he's warded him off. So he is – you can either look at him as the, the, the patriarch, patriarch the, the strong male who protects the family, but you could also look at him as the bully. Yeah, in a way. And yeah. really – and that's, that's really what you – know, I grew up on the East Coast, and I encountered mafia types, okay, and mafia <laughs> families. And people say, you know, they're just great family men. You know, the, and well, you know, yeah, he was. But he's also a bully. Yeah. And um, you know, he did nasty things. And there there's there's somebody, there's a redheaded, there's a there's a redheaded orangutan out there that um that has that same people say, well, he's such a great family man, right? <laughs> but other people say, you know, the guy's a freaking bully. Yeah. And uh, so you're so anyway, going back to the, we have this we have this dominant character at the top. Then we have these matriarchal characters in the middle of probably their own spats among themselves. And, but they, they are the, the mothering types. Um, so we, we're, we're going back to these same archetypal characters within ourselves. And then we have this, this, this juvenile at the bottom who really doesn't know where he fits in other than he's, he, really, he can't climb up the rocks because the women are going to push him down and the, guy, the, the old man's going to yell at him, mm. growl at him. Right. Um, and he hasn't become the Lion King. And maybe he, well, he someday will. Yeah. Um, so, the, so what we're finding is we're finding the same – the introvert, the extrovert, the – the 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 feeler the, the the thinker we're finding the um the bully we're finding the um the matriarchal characters we're finding all these characters in the lions and the, the same lions 
that's that same psychology alliance is also within us. So when we, so how I would put it is that going back to this collective unconscious and consciousness itself is that we pass, we somehow pass it on from one generation to the next and that we car- we carry the symbols and we carry the archetypes and when the the archetypes and symbols are are encountered the story is evoked just as i just i just expressed that story of the lions at the Oregon Zoo and does it pass on throughout dna um well collect if people if people have a so-called psychological disorder, okay, right. which I don't believe, oh, um, it could come from either the mother or the father because mm-hmm. these things, some things are hereditary. Therefore, psychology, psychological conditions can be passed from either the mother or the father. Okay, so does the um, so we 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 one could say that introvert, extrovert, think or feel, and so on are also passed through the parents. So the does it pass through the DNA per se? I don't know. But we're definitely – we're not pulling these down from the clouds because we do have psychological conditions that pass from the parents. And I would put these same psychological conditions on, on par with these, these, um, these archetypal characters that are within us. Yeah, it makes sense. That- you know what? Um, it, it really makes sense because I was thinking of a situation earlier today because I've been thinking about this nonstop. Um, okay. When I was a kid, my mom and dad, they broke up when I was seven. And for many years, I did not see my father. But as I got older and I became a man, I always had a fear of being enclosed, like in a small space for some reason. I don't know why. I never was enclosed in a small space or put in a closet or anything like that. But I always had that, I don't know, weird feeling. Anyways, long story short, many years after, you know, I I reconnected with my father and we were talking about some situation and he's like, yeah, I, I have a real bad fear of small spaces. I was like, holy shit. I was like, why would you have that same fear that I have? And I, you know, that's why, you know, why would I get that all of a sudden? And now I hear from you that you have that same thing. So obviously that must have come, you know, through some kind of consciousness, whatever you want to call it, DNA. I don't know. I'm, I'm not here to answer the question, but it came through somehow because there's no reason for me to have that same phobia or fear um, for a person that I haven't even been around to even been maybe even conditioned to have that same fear. You know what I'm saying? The conditions, the, the psychological conditions are passed at, from the parents. They're not pulled from the cloud right. because if they're pulled because there's too much there's too much commonality between what parents have and what their kids have. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And, it's crazy. and it's not just your, you know, whether you have brown or blue eyes or you know whatever it is. It because there, there's so many things we you can identify parents and kids by staying usually staying next to each other, um, or and even across the room. Oh my God, you look just like your daughter or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and so we the, these the, we pass these down. Are they passed down through a DNA? Can't say, but we can say that we've been passing down these same. Um, archetypal characters and symbols that we can recognize today from at least 34,000 years ago. And I'm going back to 300,000 years ago in, in the book. But we can, we, we haven't really changed that much. We haven't really become much smarter. We just think we're smarter. You know, the Greeks, for until the Greeks saw these images, they probably thought they were pretty smart too. Um, <laughs> but, and, uh, and so they we, pooped themselves at that point. <laughs> and, they, and, and they just had a – so they said, well, there was some ancient civilization of the gods and they, you know, they, they displeased the gods and they, they were destroyed by an earthquake. And of course you know, our army as well you know, put the final you know, axe in, the, in them. And that's of course the story of Atlantis. Right. Um, so we, um, so I, threw, I threw a bone out to you, missed it, I, that I, I grew up in the East Coast and I, we, I had encounters with mafia types. Yeah. You missed that one. No, but Boy, listen, I, I, you didn't ask me. I did. I listen. I wanted to go down that path, and I, <laughs> first thing I thought of was the Godfather. I was like, "Oh shit, this is the story of the Godfather." <laughs> well, I'm gonna tell you the story. It's a two. It's a two minute story because you're gonna love it. I want to hear this. Okay, so I grew up in the East Coast. I was I grew up Catholic, and um, when I was probably about fifteen or sixteen, my uncle Bobby um, picks me up one morning for a job. And he and he says, you can't tell your parents about the job. There's two rules. <laughs> you can't there. tell your parents, 
and don't ask any questions. Red flag number one. <laughs> okay. And we went, it was a Gambino house. Oh, okay. We're talking, so we're talking like, this isn't like peripheral people said they were the mob. These are the people actually went to jail for being mobsters. Right, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and uh, my uncle was a, a landscape – he was a landscape architect, and uh, he, he did a lot of marble work. So he had me handle the concrete. Okay? You know, so I, I, was, I did the concrete work on a mafia job, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and there's a few things that I, I, know, I you remember about. Shoes? You make any shoes by chance or no? There's <laughs> <laughs> a few things I remember about because it was like I'm, – I'm like 15, I, and I hadn't seen Playboy before. So I went, I went in the bathroom. Maybe I was 14, and – and the Playboy was there was a stack of Playboys right next to the toilet, hey. and so it must have been like a mob thing. Yeah. That you, you know, you, you're not in unless you have a stack of Playboy. Yeah, forget about and, it. Uh, that was and the other thing, of course, that everything's marble. Yeah. And my uncle specialized in that, and he it was all my uncle liked work with the mafia types because they were all, it was all a cash deal. And uh, but uh, so I until this interview tonight. I have not put it out there that I have a mafia connection <laughs> that everybody that was involved is now deceased yeah. or long put away. There you go. And I, you know, I can now, you know, break the code of silence that uh, my uncle put me to. Your secret is safe with us. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Bernie, man, listen, this has been an absolutely uh, huge treat, man. And um, please, uh, you know, we're running a little bit out of time here. I, please tell everybody where they can find all your information your books and everything, man, because I really want to push this information out there. I believe it's a real important uh, piece of, of the puzzle that listen, you should be on the history channel with that messed up hairdo. Not that guy talking about Asian aliens. <laughs> this makes more sense. You know, this makes it all lot... come. It takes time. It, it takes, takes time. time. I understand, but it, so, it, the, um, it makes sense, but please tell everybody. The book is on Amazon and every place you can find an ebook before Ryan, find the face of the hero before Ryan.com is my webpage. There's lots of videos and connections you can make from there, including Twitter and so on. I use Before Ryan for everything, so Instagram, Pinterest, um, and Facebook. Um, follow me. Um, watch the videos. There's so much information out there yes. that um, just have fun with it and learn about yourself. Yeah, that's the important part. And uh, Bernie, what do you have coming up in the future, man? I mean, you, you're you a very interesting guy. You've come up with this very interesting premise. It makes perfect sense to me. I, I don't understand how anybody else couldn't put this together, but you did, um, and I, I'm glad you did. What else do you have in the horizon coming up? Well, I, I love doing podcasts and giving presentations. I give presentations at universities as well and, um, and to groups. I My next – what I would like to do down the road – is to write a documentary, as you as you you were drawing to. So I'm reaching out there, looking for people who do this sort of thing, and it could be um, Discovery Channel, History Channel, um, could be Netflix. Um, so I'm putting out feelers to find the the right producer director who's ready to take on the greatest story ever told. You hear that, Netflix? Bernie Taylor is knocking on your door with this fantastic story, and I think it makes perfect sense. I um, thank you so much, Bernie, for coming on the podcast, and um, we're gonna have to have you back on. Uh, Let's do it. Yeah, please, and uh, you know, talk some more, and uh, and uh, have you on our podcast. So, listen, thanks again. Again, you can uh, find all his work at beforeorion.com. Uh, you can get the book there. I encourage everybody to go take a look at that and pick that up. A lot of photos, a lot of illustrations, which I love, um, and I think that you guys will enjoy it as well. Thank you, Bernie, so much for coming on the podcast. Let's do it again. Thank you. Very good. Have a good night. Well, there you have it. That's our interview with Bernie Taylor. And uh, what a great guest, man. I mean, what a wonderful uh, book that he has, uh, you know, coming out uh, or he has out already. And just a just a great compilation of different uh, pictures and stories. Um, just the illustrations alone. Are, it's just worth it. Um, again, you can find that at uh, beforeorion.com. Um, that's again before orion.com that's the website for everything there and uh, you can find all of his information uh such as uh before orion and a couple other books that he's written in the past as well so um i recommend those as well so um again i'm will martinez for dark fringe radio you can catch us uh every week here on uh either itunes um soundcloud and also google play also player fm just look up dark fringe radio and uh we'll be there just uh check us out every week make sure to give us a, a subscribe and a liking and uh we appreciate it very much uh, again if you want to send any information to us uh, via email 
Um, if you have any uh, suggestions for uh, you know a guest or uh, any idea whatsoever uh, for an episode of the podcast, you can send that to thedarkfringe at gmail.com. Again, that's thedarkfringe at gmail.com. So again, I am your host, Will Martinez. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview tonight with Bernie Taylor. We'll catch you again next week and have a good night.